Dive podcast here with three of my closest buds. I'm Andrew uh, Bailey. I'm Colin Caulfield. I'm Cole Smith. We, we play in a band called Dive, and we also do this podcast. This is episode five, so if anybody's listening for the first time, maybe, you can go back to episode one. We talk about why we started this podcast and the state of the music industry in the pandemic. So... It sucks because I think I started the um, Noi episode this way too, but, you know, I'm on the internet. <laughs> I, I look at internet things, and especially um, during the primaries and the whole election season, a lot of artists I like posted kind of political things on, on their social media stuff, anywhere from just like bland, almost non-takes, such as like vote blue, or, you know, up to like, you know... Seize the means of production for the proletariat. Like, Who said that? I don't know. Nobody. I wish they did. I said that. No matter what they said, if it was at all political, there's invariably the comment in the comment section that's basically the internet version of less talk, more rock, or mm-hmm. uh, keep politics out of art, or whatever. <laughs> Stick to music. Yeah. And I think the reason for that comment is two things, and add any if you think there's more. But one is they obviously just, like, disagree with the sentiment, and they're like, you know, it's politically not aligned with the way that they feel. And the second is just, like, a fatigue of, like, hearing about politics and wanting to escape from politics into art and being mad. An artist that they like is being political, and so they're like, oh, I just, like, can't escape these politics everywhere. Um, I have one third option, I think, which is, um, you know, there is this kind of like privilege inherent in like the ability to ignore politics, you know, because they don't directly affect you. And so like when somebody says like leave politics out of art, to me, it reads as coded language of like, I want to passively support the status quo, Mm -hmm. which is sort of almost the same as the second option of just like. I'm tired of hearing about this shit, you know? But I try not to say art is inherently political because I do think there's apolitical art. But it does seem like a lot of art is political and a lot of artists are political. And I would even go a step further and say a lot of artists are leftists. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I was just wondering, like, I wonder how long that's been true. How long has politics and art been married like going back to literally the first art of people like, you know, drawing buffalo and, you know, as a way to like plan a tactic to hunt it and stuff like that. It was still a way of influencing your peer group or your social group. And I think it's always served that purpose. It's like, I want these people to see something the way that I see it. Hmm. So I'm going to create this image that sort of, you know, makes it easier for them to understand it. 
I think that's true. I think there's a reason why artists tend to be kind of on the left end of the spectrum, though. Uh, David Byrne wrote this thing in his book, How Music Works. And I'd like to read it if that's okay with you guys. Go for it. Good book. He said, um, The act of making music, clothes, art, or even food has a very different and possibly more beneficial effect on us than simply consuming those things. And yet, for a very long time, the attitude of the state toward teaching and funding the arts has been in direct opposition to fostering creativity among the general population. It can often seem that those in power don't want us to enjoy making things for ourselves. They'd prefer to establish a cultural hierarchy that devalues our amateur efforts and encourages consumption rather than creation. Mm -hmm. This might sound like I believe there's some vast conspiracy at work, which I don't, but the situation we find ourselves in is effectively the same as if there were one. The way we are taught about music and the way it's socially and economically positioned affect whether it's integrated or not into our lives and even what kind of music might come into existence in the future. Capitalism tends toward the creation of passive consumers, and in many ways, this tendency is counterproductive. Here, here. So I feel like he's saying, like, or what I'm saying is that, like, the reason why so many artists find themselves on the left side of the political spectrum is because, like, the government doesn't fund the arts. And it's not like we need the government to, like, baby us and, like, give us money, but it's like our priorities are so clearly fucked up like we could be funding things that better people's lives instead of just like you know the the typical stuff war and fossil fuels yeah it comes down to our economic realities you know Mm -hmm. i don't know i think it goes deeper because like i know plenty of bands from other countries who do receive economic uh relief or whatever from the government who are very anti-government you know Mm -hmm. like like chastity for Mm -hmm. example canadian Um, band yeah, they're from Canada, and Canada gave them, you know, not like a crazy amount of money, but more than we've ever gotten from the U.S. government just mm-hmm. to go on tour in Europe. And they are still very anti-Canadian government, which I think is awesome. But I think that the the difference, or the reason that you find more people with progressive, left-leaning ideologies as artists goes even deeper into our psychology, and that there is... Simplistically, two types of people, and that liberal and conservative has less to do with your education and more to do with, um, you know, its nature more than it is nurture. And that there are some people who like things to be the same. They are. They don't want, or they have no need to explore anything outside. And this all goes back to you know the differences in hunter gatherers and stuff like that. Like the the different types of people you needed in your community to survive. And we still have those types of brains out there. And, you know, now we're geographically separated where people who are more into weird shit and just like um, trying out new things despite the risk or whatever are going to end up in cities. Whereas people who just like things how they like it, you know, they got the routine and stuff like that, they'll be out in the West or in the middle of America. But I don't think it's like, that's kind of like the, the, two sidesism that I think is like a kind of false dichotomy. You know, right. there's like, it's not just that the right wants things to stay the way they are. I mean, it, it is if those things mean like white supremacy and stuff, but the right right now is, you know, 
is saying like fucking Kyle Rittenhouse for Congress, like assassinate leftists <laughs> in the street. And the left is saying like, can we please have healthcare? Healthcare is a human right. And so like, I don't think, well, I maybe do agree with, with like the roots of what you're saying. I think that like it does kind of play into like this um, to both sidesism or two sidesism of like things are so polarized right now. And it's like, well, one side is extremely polarized, but the other side is just like wants to stay alive. Mm-hmm. There's something we kind of touched on before that was like um, talking about just like politics in general. And now our what we call politics has nothing to do with policy or even like cultural issues. It's just like this political theater and performative like act of like our side versus their side cult of personality yeah which i think that's where a lot of the two sides ism comes from because it's like you're either this team or the other team and there's no in between and how they use wedge issues you know it's like Mm -hmm. okay so the conservatives are also christian okay let's use pro-life even though you know i doubt too many republican senators give a shit yeah that started with reagan and like you know like the the embrace of Donald Trump by the religious right is absurd. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess to go back talk to talk about art um, and politics. You know, I I do kind of feel like all art is political, and like politics likewise should be artistic. And it seems like art is the last line of defense um, against authoritarian control it's like lets you see past the illusion of capitalism that there's like an alternative world outside of outside of capitalism or that it's necessary like imagining a world um that that's like you know has progressed past the need of of capitalism but also the corporate world will only allow for art and ideas to exist in like a direct relation to how much they can sell of it. So like, I feel like that's the contradiction that's, that's fundamental to the relationship between art and um, its commodification under capitalism or art and politics. Yeah. That was something I like that Kim Gordon said in an interview, like is art just design now? And she was saying she's doing an art project or she probably already did it um, of Airbnb inspired art. You know, art that is both like tries to be intellectual, but also is literally nothing, you know, and just like finding that perfect balance. Well, she had those like press photos a year ago. Do you remember them? No. Extremely bizarre, like stock photo looking (laughs) press photos of like her laying on a bed, like in an Airbnb Mm -hmm. looking room. Just like completely. She She did a photo shoot in an Airbnb. Yeah. Like totally lacking of like personality or anything. (laughs) Just kind of like vaguely nice looking or clean. (laughs) It's really weird. And wasn't there an Uber thing too? Some element on the Kim Gordon solo record, like a video or something? Yeah. She did a video in an Uber. And it was like Hmm. the Uber driver was like part of the video, like a character in the video. So I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, well, it's like corporate propaganda. I'm sure. I, I actually don't know what. I, I don't think I've seen the video, but I know that that exists. I do like the idea of art being like. How did you word it? Being like the the last stand. The yeah, like the last line of defense. Last line of defense, because I've 
in like watching interviews with all these bands that we've been looking at and everything, it's like people being exposed to these kind of like outsider personalities. It's like the only, it, a lot of times it's like the only non-mainstream, like, or the only representation of non-mainstream uh, ideas that people get. But mm-hmm. like in the mainstream. But in the mainstream, yeah, through the same channels, where mm-hmm. it'd be like MTV or like YouTube now or whatever. Um, but just like, you know, I was like really struck by the ads that they were showing between videos that I was watching, where it's just like unbelievably watered down beige representations of like what you need in your life. And like, this is what, this is what's important. Like this car, you know, just like run of the mill, like advertising. And then it would cut to like, you know. Thurston Moore being like a fucking insane person in some interview or I was watching like Lou Reed and the Australian TV. Um, That's a classic. Those classic interviews. Yeah. Yeah. And just like the, the contrast between like these like clean representations of what being a human is. And then these like, like just clowns basically who like offer like a glimpse into like what you can do with your life and how like weird you can be. Yeah. Which I think is in line with what you're saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, it is this weird last line of defense, but it's also the first line of defense. Like that's what avant-garde means is like the front lines of like a battle or whatever, like oh, really? vanguard. Yeah. Vanguard and avant-garde are like the same word. In just like expanding this notion of like art being political, because a lot of times when I hear that, I think like that it has to be like explicitly political or expressly political in some way, but like just an artist like existing outside of the norm Mm -hmm. can be political. Sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, so I think that lends itself to the idea that like all art is political because even when, even when you're not like talking about like your opinion on some policy or something like that, just your existence and like showing up as, as an individual outside of like, the mainstream or whatever is a political act. <laughs> what did you say to the uh, Plato's argument that poets, but for him, poet just meant artists, mm. um, how they are the worst people in society because they just sort of paint a picture of a false reality and that acts as sort of like, you know, like Marx's opiate of the masses. Like people, rather than in the cave turning around and seeing the puppet masters, just look at the art that just uh, reinforces the false reality. That's not the artist's fault, though. That's isn't that isn't that on the viewer to like interrogate what they're seeing rather than just being like, "Oh, this shadow on the cave is all there is in the world." Yeah, I don't know. I, I never really thought of an answer to it that isn't just like "fuck you, Plato." Because when I first heard that, I was in school for poetry, and I was like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm the worst. Um, but I think it was just outdated. I guess I don't know because it's sort of the opposite now. Well, also, like, art isn't born from nothing. It's a reaction mm-hmm. to culture. And so to, like, pin it on the artist as being, like, the problem in the equation or whatever mm-hmm. is kind of, like, ignoring the fact that there are forces beyond the artists that are influencing the way they interpret the world. It'd be like turning around. It's like, it's like, they should turn around and look at the puppet master, but then also acknowledging that there's like other puppet masters controlling those. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or at least having influence on them. And even still, though, if that, even if someone is passively consuming art 
it's still, I think, um, helping people to think creatively or to experience creativity, which, um, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about Cole's point of that all art is political because it takes creativity to imagine a world outside of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And so the act of being creative is political. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's like a hallmark of being human, the ability to imagine a reality that doesn't exist. Like that's what separated us from even Neanderthals. They couldn't do that. And so in that way, art is like one of the most human things possible. I feel like it kind of relates to that Trotsky quote that I texted you guys. I don't know if you had um, anything to say about it. But I'll read the quotes. Art can become a strong ally of revolution only insofar as it remains faithful to itself. Poets, painters, sculptors, and musicians will themselves find their own approach and methods if the struggle for freedom and oppress if the struggle for freedom of oppressed classes and people scatters the clouds of skepticism and of pessimism which cover the horizon of mankind. It's kind of like that same thing I was talking about, about like seeing a world past mm-hmm. the the one that we're um existing in he's almost saying the inverse of what we were saying though which is like protest and political action is art not art is protest but like when you see uh you know someone breaking the spell of capitalism and you realize like that was a big argument when like the black block originated which Mm -hmm. now people just think black block and uh antifa is the same thing (laughs) yeah but uh it's like People are like, what good is it doing breaking a window to Starbucks? And it's like, because that's, it's, it's a magical spell of saying like, hey, this is all made up. This is something we could like dismantle if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's powerful in the same exact way that a powerful piece of art is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like something Bailey said around the time of the protest was like, people are attacking Starbucks because, or, you know, whatever, like big business in mm-hmm. that like, at the point of purchase, because that's the only way that we have access to capitalism. Right. You know, that's, that's our, that's our entry point. Yeah. And yeah, our experience of it. We're not allowed to punish corporations. And so the only power we have is financial and you can't hurt a corporation financially unless you take something from them. Um, maybe to go back, Colin, to your point about, um, you know, the, the like two types of, being political in music, the, you know, the, just like some artists are political just by existing, Mm -hmm. but there are, you know, there are a lot of examples of like, like, um, explicitly political music. And I was curious what your guys' experience is of, um, becoming radicalized by music you listen to, you know, like, being a sixth grader and being exposed to Mumio Abu Jamal from Rage Against Machines music, or mm-hmm. you know, being being a kid and, and learning about you know veganism and anarchism from you know pop punk bands like Propagandi and shit that fully radicalized me. And I wonder um, what what y'all's experience of that is. Yeah, that was a big one for me. Um, going back to we talked about in Nirvana how mm-hmm. like. Um, learning that homophobia is wrong, for example, or starting to question Christianity and stuff I got from Nirvana. And then, yeah, Rage Against the Machine right afterwards would just open this floodgates. And it was right at the time where I was first becoming aware of socialism and stuff like that, and but was already aware of, you know, a general 
injustice in society, you know, whether it's like a wealth disparity or whatever. And, um, and Rage Against the Machine just really struck a chord with me. And, you know, I was 11 or 12 just screaming about politics that I did not understand at all. Probably uh, Dead Prez for you too, huh? Well, yeah, and then when I was 14, Dead Prez came out, and it was insane how much it clicked with me because, you know, I'm a white dude, and it's not for me. That record is not for me at all. <clears throat> but it was just putting, or it was just explaining all the disparities that I see and, and putting them in this historical context and, um, you know, the structure of American society and stuff. So if it, if it wasn't for music, would I be as progressive now or as even interested in politics? It's hard to say because that's really what it was for me. There was very little separation between, you know, I was listening to Dead Prez to learn, you know, and yeah, it sounded cool, but... Yeah, we should do a whole episode about... Oh yeah, yeah, cool. yeah! Everybody, go listen to Dead Prez. Let's get free. Best record ever. I bought it the day it came out. <laughs> you know that? Nice, bro. Thank you, thank you. How about how about how about you, Ben? What radicalized you? Uh, I was into like emo and like hardcore and shit. And I remember it was like my like he wasn't my cousin, but he was like a family friend or something like that. I was hanging out with him and uh, talking to him about music, and we had liked some of the same stuff. But he was like already like really into radical politics and stuff. And he gave me an Adbusters magazine that had a picture of an American flag burning on the front, and I was like, "Whoa! Like this is wrong. <laughs> You're not supposed to do this." And then he told me about um, Crime Think. Do you know yeah. about that? And uh, it Crime was just Think. over for me. It was like the coolest shit that I had ever imagined. And then, uh, yeah, starting to realize that they're in punk and hardcore, there's like these really strong roots of like this like crazy activism and, uh, uh, and it had a huge effect on me. I've, I feel like I've brought it up every episode of this podcast is like the, in the nineties, this like weird culture jamming ad busters thing where, you know, it was fun and lighthearted, but it was also like really serious and mm-hmm. like, you know, um, like we were just talking about, like the power of images and symbols. It was like this symbolic rebellion of just like realizing that art was political and that, um, and even just like, like I, like starting to go to punk shows and stuff like that, there were some bands that were um, openly communist. And I was like, I didn't realize communism was like an actual thing you know it was like oh people actually like think this is a yeah that was my first reaction to it (laughs) yeah because we're just like indoctrinated by public school like you know red scare shit which i Mm -hmm. think we should talk about yeah it was like it was like saying you were a nazi when my friend was like yeah i'm a neo-socialist and i was like what the fuck (laughs) but it was to me it was more of a joke like communism isn't it's not a serious ideology it's a it's something people used to believe in, and now we've progressed past that. Right. Yeah, like that that Simpsons bit about, like, in theory, communism mm-hmm. works. And I feel like I internalized mm-hmm. that for, like, a weird length of time yeah, in my or life. it works on paper. Right, yeah. <laughs> what about you, Colin? I think I, like, I got really, really into Woodstock um, and the whole, like, 60s-era protest 
like musical protest movement when I was younger, and it kind of gave me like a really narrow idea of what like political music could be. And then, you know, like a song like Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young or whatever, where it's like explicitly political, you know, mm-hmm. there's like no way of ignoring it. And for whatever reason, after that, I kind of just like, I was just under the impression that like political music was like dead or something, you know? And I would listen to Rage Against the Machine and like System of a Down, who also are like very explicitly political. But it just like washed over me for whatever reason. But I think I think like a lot of my a lot of my intake of like like mind expanding or like radicalizing political ideas came from people that like friends of mine that I would go to shows with or just hang out with who were they were the ones consuming the art. Hmm. And then they were like interpreting it and like expressing it. And then that's how I was picking up on it. So I didn't really like, I feel like honestly it was like, it wasn't until like In Rainbows came out and that felt like a really like directly political statement because it was just like a fuck you to like the like very accepted and mainstream idea of how to release music that I was like, oh, I guess people are still talking about this. Wow, I forgot about that. That was the first pay what you want. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or Trent Reznor did it first and then. That sounds right. But this was like, yeah, it felt like the moment Mm -hmm. when people, when everyone was talking about it, you know? Yeah, there was, what was that live Radiohead um, record that came out? Um, I can't remember, but like in the middle of a song, someone hands Tom York a flyer for a protest that's something. And he says like to the crowd, like everyone go to this protest. Like Like an Iraq war protest? No, Mm -hmm. it was like the, it was like a trade deal or something like the F. I can't remember. That reminds me of learning about Occupy Wall Street at a Manu Chow concert. At Terminal 5. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, Terminal 5 is what, like 2000? Huge. It's, it's a lot of people. And he told everybody about Occupy Wall Street. And these are all people who were there to see Manu Chow, who isn't even singing in English most of the time, right? Mm-hmm. He has Portuguese. I yeah, think. and and it was so effective. You know, because everybody in there just started Googling Occupy Wall Street. I had never heard of it. And it it was like, what, like two months before it or something Mm -hmm. like that. There's something my aunt told me one time when I first moved to New York and was working for an art publishing company. And I got, I moved to New York like to be a graffiti artist Mm -hmm. and then immediately got disillusioned just because of the uh, volume of street artists there. I was like, oh, I'm never going to make it here. But I was working like in the art industry and I had such high um, ideas about art and what it was and what it meant and all this stuff. And then working in the actual industry, which is there to make money, you know, I was just like, what the fuck? Like it really blew my conception apart about what art was. And my aunt was like, you just need to realize the difference between art and art for sale. Mm. And I was like, oh. (laughs) Yeah, there is this like really funny kind of paradox there that I think we have talked about. But I was I was reading something. I can't remember what, but they brought up this example of, um, you know, the Jenny Holzer truisms. It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of her body of work is these like um, just like, you know, very short truisms, Um, you know, like uh, public strategies. No, but like. (laughs) 
you know, um, abuse of power comes as no surprise yeah. or something. But like, there's there's one that's private property is a crime, and if you take that truism, put it on a bench and sell it, and that bench becomes somebody's private property, then like, what is that? You know, where, like, <laughs> where's the politics in that? Is it negated by its sale? You know, mm-hmm. kind of. Mm. I mean, yeah, these are all such philosophical questions on what art is. I'm reading this book called Art as Human Practice, and I was, like, so stoked to read it, but it's so academic. It's just, like, I can't comprehend this because there's so much referencing happening. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's a good transition in the Sonic Youth because their music is so full of reference. Yes. It's like impossible to talk about Sonic Youth without just going on 5 million tangents because it's just like there's, it's so chock full of reference and um, this kind of like almost ironic reading of, of like rock history um, that like every song or album you talk about will lead you in a million directions Mm -hmm. because it's so explicitly referential Mm -hmm which is kind of in contrast to like Nirvana when we were talking about, it's like his reference palette is very limited, Mm -hmm. but Sonic Youth is like encyclopedic about its, its um, use of like, you know, sampling of, of rock and experimental music or like reference or, you know, tongue in cheek kind of ironic appropriation. It's just, there's a lot. So I feel like it is, our conversation is going to be all over the place. For that reason. And also collaboration. Mm-hmm. And they reference themselves, too. Mm-hmm. Like, I love self-referential shit like that. It makes you feel like you're in on the joke, you know? Mm-hmm. Colin, you were saying how um, when you got into, like, 60s-style protest music, that you felt like that was, like, over? Yeah. Um, and I feel like the music video for Death Valley 69 and that song in general is kind of about the end of the 60s. And the end of like the flower child like protest movement, it's like just like grisly like gore and like uh, it's like this weird juxtaposition of like people spinning in a field like holding hands and then just like dead bodies and like police brutality and all this stuff. And I feel like they were um, that song is a reference to like the Manson yes stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know what specifically, but um, the name Sadie, yeah. And I think it was their way of just being like, the 60s are dead. Like, this shit is like dead, dead. Yeah, Bailey was, was, was Helter Skelter the end, of the, the end of the 60s? According to Joan Didion, the Tate LaBianca murders were the end of the 60s. And um, the, it, I was really interested to find out about um, Sonic Youth, but also uh, just that sort of generation of artists fascination with Manson because like we were talking about earlier they are the artists coming after the hippie movement or the counterculture movement of the 60s and 70s which objectively failed um and Charles Manson was this figure who uh can I say it? I don't want to get too confused. Go for it. <clears throat> Charles Manson was this figure who was literally placed by 
the CIA. Allegedly. Into, uh, <laughs> you can read this shit up. It's been FOIA'd. Um, all right, I'm definitely going to edit this out. If I mention FOIA. Freedom of Information <laughs> yeah, Act. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so <clears throat> but Manson was specifically designed to put a bad face on the hippie movement. So mm-hmm. that this idea of the hippie, when people think of hippies, they wanted the image of Charles Manson to come to mind as like hippies are murderous. Mm-hmm. They're just crazy. They don't, but he wasn't even a hippie. You know, he got out of prison and they sent him there and he's like, hell yeah, where's the party at? What do I got to do? Grow my hair long. All right. You know, I do think it was a conspiracy, but back to that David Byrne quote, like whether it's a conspiracy or not, we find ourselves in the same situation, which yeah, is totally. the hippie movement is fucking dead. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a really important I, I missed that in that book, but it's it's not necessarily Hanlon's razor. It's, What's Hanlon's razor? Hanlon's razor is um, don't uh, subscribe to malice. What is easier attributed to stupidity and ignorance? Negligence. But I think in, in this case, it's more. This is just what capitalism does, and the you know the the symptoms of capitalism do look like conspiracies but like Ben Stein or David Byrne said there there's no difference between them so it's almost pointless to talk about you know the end result is the same mm-hmm. the hippies were done manson survived as like basically the most famous hippie right who's a more famous hippie than manson i guess you could say john, like john lennon, lennon right but yeah okay but as far as being famous just for being a hippie it's manson yeah he did he became the face of of the end of the 60s and then and it worked and that happened and then 10 20 years later all these artists are like wait what happened back then like now all the people that were protesting the government all have cush jobs and are benefiting from this economy while we're fucked like what is going on like what really happened there who was charles manson and because uh, it, it kind of irked me when I was finding out that a lot of 90s bands sort of celebrated Manson. You know, There's like a long history of that in, yeah. in, in punk music. There's, I mean, we'll talk about Raymond Pettibon later, I think, but um, who did the art for, for Goo, the Sonic Youth record. But, um, you know, he was he was doing all the art for Black Flag. And, you know, in 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 the 80s in Southern California, He's making these black flag flyers that are like Charles Manson's face on the body of Jesus crucified <laughs> on the cross and like really insane, gnarly shit um, to, to like offend people or like celebrate this death of the hippie movement, mm-hmm. you know, or like some combination of that. dive podcast well i guess before we talk about bad moon rising which is the um third sonic youth record if you count the ep um we're talking a little bit about black flag and and the hardcore movement and i feel like confusion is sex their their second record or their first full length is like really heavily and like overtly referential to the the hardcore scene you know, even just looking at the cover, you know, it's this like, oh, like photocopied a million times, um, like flyer art. And like that became a thing because bands would go on tour and people who were putting shows on the East Coast, 
you know, they would be photocopying a photocopy of a photocopy or whatever, and it became a thing. So bands would like go on tour and collect their own flyers from the other side of the country, and it became this aesthetic. But, you know, um, the other hardcore connection to um, Confusion is Sex is is the song Confusion is Next, which is like straight up a hardcore song. Mm-hmm. You know, just like it, it, like the bass line, the, the, um, kind of like shouted vocals, the, the, the way that the song unfolds, it's like basically a hardcore song. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that was, that record is extremely referential to, to that, to that scene. And then they kind of just moved on. So then I guess, you know, the next thing to talk about is Bad Moon Rising. So maybe now we could listen to, Death Valley 69. On the vinyl version of the album, that's the the last track, which is kind of the crescendo of the album. Um, but I want to talk about the album as a whole. Bad Moon Rising. Bad Moon Rising, yeah. 1984, I think, or 85. 85. So it starts with just a little guitar intro. And then track two comes in and it's like, the bass is like severely out of tune. The drums are so dry. If it wasn't so menacing sounding, it would be funny. 
so they never went like full concept album, like, you know, Sufjan Stevens or something. But a lot of their albums had like these loose themes. And this one seems to be just like declining America apocalypse. And I really enjoy the album cover um, of the like jack-o'-lantern on fire. It looks like it's like dawn in like industrial New Jersey or something like that. Like very gross and just matches the vibe of the record so much. And then, you know, the first song is um, Brave Men Run in parentheses in my family. Which is from, um, you know, I mean, there's so many references on this record, but that line is from... um, a painting by a visual artist whose name I can't remember, but it's like a picture of like the Mayflower or something. And then it oh. says brave rent men run in my family. Oh, wow. Like, yeah. Do you think that, um, the album title is, I mean, it's obviously a reference, but do you think it's specifically addressing what we were talking about earlier? Like the failure of political hippie bands like Credence? Hmm. I, I mean, it was like a self-purported Americana album. It's definitely intentionally referential to the 60s and mm-hmm. you know so i yeah i think it's a direct reference. but did they ever explain why they chose bad moon rising i think it just goes along with the theme of like you know like the whole album is like bad vibes it's like just what you don't want to it's you know what you don't want to hear when you're having a bad trip or something yeah it's just like <laughs> it's just like much more true vision of Americana, like the the line from Ghost Bitch, our founding fathers laid right down an Indian ghost from long ago. They gave birth to my bastard kin. You know, like the idea, um, there's like a big thing about it in the Joseph Campbell book, Power of Myth, talking about General Seattle, who was, um, it's like Indian general who was like, okay, like you can have this piece of land, but like, you know, you have to respect the land. Like the the river is the the tears of my ancestors and, and whatever. And then like, you know, we slaughtered all of the indigenous population and colonized the land. And I feel like that also ties in with the um the brave men running my family art, you know, this like much much more realistic portrayal of Amer of American identity and Americana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the they're such a um they do such a good job at capturing a mood. Like the album almost reminds me of like Godspeed You Black Emperor or something, where it's just this really apocalyptic feeling. Um it's really like harsh and foreboding, menacing. And it is super referential to music that is similar that came before it, like experimental guitar music. Like there's a big clip, um, at the beginning of one of the songs, I can't remember. Uh, I think it's Society as a Whole, actually, that that starts with like a big sample from Metal Machine music and then mm. ends with a Stooges sample that leads into the next song. And there are that just all these these references to this like musical landscape that's like very harsh. You ever heard the Flaming Lips cover of Death Valley no. 69? <laughs> it's uh really good. It's really like unhinged. It's live. Um I think it was on that album. Finally, punk rockers are taking acid. Death Valley '69. <laughs> no, it's like. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> um, Do you want to talk about Lydia Lunch? 
Oh yeah, we should R- real quick. It was on um, just like a small like DIY record label. Uh, I can't remember what it's called in the U.S., but in the U.K. The way I imagined it, I don't know if this is actually how it went down. Oh, but Blast First Records? Yeah, Blast First. They created the label to uh, distribute this album in Europe because they are one of those bands um, that were like more popular in Europe than the U.S. initially, which I feel like happens a lot with cool bands. Like Europeans can see something that Americans can't. Mm-hmm. But... Um, <clears throat> Then that label went on to be like a really cool label and put out uh, Big Black Songs About Fucking and um, Locust Abortion Technician, the uh, Butthole Surfers album, and a bunch of other ones they put out, you know, uh, Daydream Nation and all that stuff later. So it was like, I feel like that's kind of emblematic of their career was like literally invent a record label that then puts out every cool record for the next 10 years, you know? Well, and the same thing with Confusion is Sex was on Neutral Records, which was That's made, the one by, I can think of, yeah. made by Glenn Branca and then like went on to release Swans Records and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I feel like everything they did before they went on Geffen kind of created these um, like little label worlds. Yeah, they, were, uh, they shared a practice space with Swans, so they went on their first tours together and stuff. But yeah, also... Uh, they were buds with Lydia Lynch. I mean, Lunch. I always say that because Lydia Lynch was also a singer from a different era, I think, hmm. which maybe is what her name is referencing. Mm-hmm. But sh- so I feel like in order to talk about her, you got to talk about like the whole kind of Lori side scene in the late 70s because how she got introduced to it was being friends with Alan Vega and Martin Rev. Um, yeah, it seems like Suicide comes up a lot mm-hmm. as being a a band that was pivotal for um, a lot of those artists. I also feel like at that time, it was just like there was art. It wasn't like music, poetry, performance art. Like they were all the same thing. It was just like weirdos in public spaces saying words and playing music. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I know you guys all watched that, um, that video of her in... Detroit doing the like spoken word thing and then a Q and A thing. I was wondering what y'all thought of that. Um, it's interesting, but there's a lot of romanticizing. Uh, I don't know. It's just kind of annoying when people romanticize that time and that place in New York. Maybe just because I've heard it too much at this point or something. But also like being in like the exact same place where there was, you know, tenement housing for mm-hmm. like post-war immigrants who are living in like absolute poverty, you know, and then like the, the, um, this kind of like art scene comes out of there, which like is a classic thread of gentrification where it's like these, um, you know, artists move into these, to these like extremely poor neighborhoods and then kind of like fetishize the, um, the poverty that that they were experiencing or the people around them were experiencing. And then it leads to, you know, developers coming in and, and, and gentrifying the absolute fuck out of these neighborhoods, which did happen in Lower East Side, even though there is still this kind of Lower East Side flavor and it feels like it is kind of ungentrifiable in a way, but like, you know, it, it's... <laughs> extremely expensive to live there and it, it is yeah, like, all. unless you're in like the east village out on like avenue c or something you're rich mm-hmm. you know even mm-hmm. though and it, it's because the subway doesn't go over there but i guess now they got the second avenue 
subway mm-hmm. going down there. I don't know if it goes all the way down there. But I think I feel it does. Like that's the last thing, right? Like Yeah, I mean that's the thing that you look you know, if you're looking at Manhattan or at the Lower East Side from from Williamsburg, which is itself wildly gentrified, mm-hmm. you're looking out on the what are they called? Louis Louisada projects on Avenue D. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I used to walk over to those projects because I was living on 6th Street and A or something like that. And it's like another world over there. It just feels so removed from everything, like an insular bubble because it's these really high-rise buildings, but it's also like waterfront. But it's also so far from any subways that, it, I don't know, there's something special about it, but I don't Alphabet see City. it being gentrified anytime soon. Well, it's all, it's like housing projects, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, they privatized housing build or housing project buildings all the time. Yeah, I mean there's, True. you know, the the Chelsea projects and there's the the really big one right on 14th Street, mm-hmm. which I forget what they're called, but it was a housing project that's now like maximum value condos. What yeah. are those called? I don't know. Oh, you're on the corner Stytown, right? Stytown. Yeah, yeah, Stytown. I think the Lydia lunch talk just touches on like the uncomfortable for me the uncomfortable relationship between like the idea of like real art is only born from struggling mm-hmm. and like pain <laughs> and yeah just this fetishization of poverty and this like kind of like willful willful ignorance of the non-artist experience of poverty and like kind of like like looking past that for the sake of um of like real art being created and then years later going to Detroit and being like, this is where it's at now because it's this, the city is still struggling so much. And it just like, it just read to me as like kind of tone deaf, right? Mm-hmm. Like poverty is good because right. it makes art. I mean, like personally, I would, I would rather live in a society where there's no poverty and no art, hmm. no art, no art without we've progressed past the need for art. <laughs> I would, I would be down. Even Star Trek had art. I guess I would try it and then probably... Uh, I mean, I'd give it a shot. I'd, I'd think that poverty is relative. So unless like everything was actually 100% egalitarian, equal to everybody, then would you need art? I don't know. Well, art like is we, entertainment. We said in the very beginning of this podcast, like art is like just a human thing that people do right and so in that society by going out and starting a militia and stealing everybody's resources that would be an act of art (laughs) (laughs) um just one more thing about this album was apparently when they recorded it um or when they wrote it rather they had been uh touring all the songs from their first full length a whole bunch and like for like a year straight of just, and it seems like throughout their whole career, they were just obsessed with playing shows and always playing. And they were just playing the same songs over and over again. So they decided to get new gear and do all their songs in different tunings so that they couldn't play the old stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that set them on like a trajectory of like weird tunings and weird gear and, uh, it kind of like sets the stage for the rest of their career after this. Totally. Um, yeah, I mean, the you know, they're like fabled for their their alternative tunings. And I think that as a music or as a guitar player, it's really refreshing to like pick up a, an instrument that's in a different tuning because you kind of lose all of your muscle memory 
stuff the way you play you have to you can't really just play with your fingers you know it's like yeah, it's it kind of not becomes a habit a, anymore yeah it becomes like a, a new instrument I remember learning that when um, Presidents of the United States of America came out. <laughs> and they were like, bro, just take all the strings off your guitar. Leave two or three and you'll start writing songs all day. And yeah, it's the Jesus and Mary Chain thing too. Oh, really? Yeah, he's like, well, how come there's only two strings in your bass? He's like, if I had four, I'd get confused. <laughs> <laughs> but another thing about Bad Moon Rising before we move on that I think relates to, to us as a band is... Um, one story I had heard about the genesis of this record was that it came from them trying to make songs out of the stuff they did in between songs. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and we're a band that never really tried to do much stuff between songs. And then we went on tour with Deaf Heaven and their whole set was this like cohesive thing where there were these transitions and they were thought through you know it wasn't just like let a delay note ring out it was like they actually became these mini compositions and it did inspire us to just try that ourselves um and i think that there is this cool art that happens when you're like trying to fill time Mm -hmm. you know yeah there's always they always had a strong improvisational element Mm-hmm. To their, which I feel like is part of that kind of New York scene mm-hmm. um, at that time. Um, yeah, yeah, because they they get a lot of credit for being like experimental guitarists, and rightfully so. But Lydia Lunch, who sings on Death Valley '69, was actually one of the first people in the scene when she was in Teenage Jesus and the Riots or whatever the Jerks, the jerks. or the Jerks. To she was like playing the guitar with like glass bottles and shit mm-hmm. and all these like fucked up like instruments. And that's kind of, that's like, and Glenn Branca was doing a similar thing. And that's kind of like part of the lineage of John Cale too. John Cage. John right. Cage, right. Yeah. Not John Cale. Um, John Cage would make these prepared pianos where he would like open them up and like stick screwdrivers and like fuck with all the mechanisms that make the piano sound like a piano so that when you, play it it's actually just this kind of like industrial sounding you ever seen his notation for that stuff i have seen it it's yeah hilarious like he he like draws diagrams to show like where to hit the piano with a hammer mm-hmm. and shit like that All that's kind of like the um john zorn written music have you ever seen any of that it's like it'll be you know like the sheet music bars or whatever and then it'll just be like pictures of like a bat and then like <laughs> you know just like make it sound like evil mm-hmm. um I th- I think you know there's a there is like a long history of those kind of like experimental guitarists like Glenn Branca and Reese Chatham and people you know um, Thurston Moore and Lee Ronaldo met because they were both playing in Glenn Branca's band um, and doing these kind of like post minimal guitar um, like like influenced by classical music and it kind of was classical music but like kind of redefining what the guitar was. Um, and then Sonic Youth kind of pushed it in a different direction. There's this really funny, there's like a, actually a couple funny quotes when they're talking about Glenn, Glenn Branca. They said like, he's interested in the harmonic series and we're interested in television series <laughs> in, in um, Year That Punk Broke. But there's a thing where he straight up said, um, anyone where Glenn Branca said, anyone who's my fan automatically became a Sonic Youth fan. Sonic Youth gave them what I had, but sugarcoated it. You know, it is kind of 
like taking these ideas and like packaging them. And I think that's why Sonic Youth adapted more to the like popular music at the time so that they could, you know, so that the same thing that happened to Glenn Branca wouldn't happen to them where somebody takes their ideas and, mm-hmm. and waters them down. It's cool too. I, I, I'm sure we'll talk about this more as we go on, but this idea of like dissonance in their music and like the tradition of dissonance in music. And it's like a really huge topic, but like Glenn Branca was listening to classical music, but also like, and we could, we should play a clip of this. It's really tight. This uh, traditional Japanese music called Gagaku, which is like this like ritual traditional music from the, I think it was like formalized in the 10th century or something. There's no, maybe there's a couple string instruments, but it's a lot of like flutes. Hmm. But it's interesting listening to it because it creates like a similar atmosphere that you feel when you listen to Sonic Youth. It's a lot Mm -hmm. of drones and like really sparse dry percussion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very, very sparse dry percussion. But then like drones that aren't really like bound to like a note. They kind of just like move in and out. If you just change the dynamics of the presentation of that idea, then you kind of have like Glenn Branca. And then if you change the dynamics, like Cole's talking about sugarcoating it or like packaging it into like a rock and roll type mm-hmm. of thing, then you have Sonic Youth, which is it's just cool to follow the mm-hmm. trajectory of like a concept like dissonance. Or like, you know, the concept like the, you know, I think Lydia Lunch talks about it in the in that um, Detroit thing we we're talking about, about like Dada and then being like, these kind of like extension of Dada Dadaism and that there is like, you know, the, the like cut up method of poetry in in Dada where you like, all you need is a newspaper and scissors and you can write poems. And that is kind of something that happens a lot on Bad Moon Rising where it's like, they take these other elements out of context and like create their own thing out of it. Mm -hmm. It's worth mentioning. This is not going to be like comprehensive and like in between almost every album they put out an EP, they were doing collaborations, they were doing solo stuff, like ridiculously prolific band. They released stuff under different names. Like, there's just way too much to talk about. Um, And I really appreciate that about them. But, so then in 86, they released uh, EVOL on SST Records, which... It's a very cool label. We talked about that in the uh, when we talked about Negative Land in the Noi episode. Um, and this album uh, was the first one with the drummer Steve Shelley, who the lineup of there's some more Kim Gordon, Lee Ronaldo, and Steve Shelley would remain the lineup for the next like 20 years or till the end. Uh, the only alteration to that was when they had uh, Jim O'Rourke play guitar mm-hmm. for a couple albums in the late 90s, early 2000s. So this is like the core of the band has formed. Oh yeah, and Steve Shelley played in the band The Crucifix, which was talking about um, you know pol- politics and art. They're a very overtly political band, very overtly 
anti-police, anti-boss, just like, but in a really funny way. Um, You know, like they have a song called Go Bankrupt and Die, which is just like, you know, saying fuck you to the boss. Or they have a song called um, Cops as Fertilizer, I think, or something like that. It's just literally about like killing cops. Anyway, uh, so he was a cool guy. And... uh, But this album also featured uh, Lydia Lunch and then Mike Watt from the Minutemen plays bass on a couple songs too, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because his band, you know, that that band is a tragic story. They're you know from like San Pedro or somewhere in Southern California, and they were on tour and were in a van crash, and the singer D Boone died in the crash, mm-hmm. and you know Mike Watt, who was like an equal force in that band, was just kind of like what the fuck do I do? He was going to quit music Mm -hmm. and the people in Sonic Youth were like, we'll just come play with us for a little bit, you know, like, and like kind of like nurtured him back to health. And in fact, this band has a lot of uh, tragedy surrounding it. There's a lot of different times where people died or, I mean, it's just kind of makes sense with as large as their social group was. And as long as they were a band, naturally some people are going to die, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, we, we, I think you wanted to talk later about the the all the bands they had opening for them, but there is this kind of like unique thing where they were touring with these like drug bands, you know, mm-hmm. Nirvana, like these bands with these like kind of storied um, histories and people, and those were like drug bands making like pretty conventional music, you know, and then there they were Sonic Youth, kind of like not into drug culture and not um, like pretty much pretty straight people making like extremely bizarre music, Mm -hmm. you know, it was this like kind of funny paradox, not funny, I guess there's a lot of tragedy in there too, but like, you know, interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can just go ahead and hit that list real quick because it's crazy that, you know, we talked about Swans and then in 1986, which is when uh, EVOL came out, they mm-hmm. toured with Dinosaur Jr., who at the time was just called Dinosaur, um, and they would be friends for the rest of their career. Flaming Lips after that, Nirvana after that, Pavement, Boredoms, Bikini Kill, Stereolab, Liars. Like, they just clearly had their finger on the pulse of like what was about to be Daniel cool. Johnston? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were... I almost hate to use this phrase, but I also think it's a really interesting concept of people or bands or artists being ahead of their time, which they just were like their fashion. They always looked like the next decade, Mm -hmm. like in the eighties, they looked like they were from the nineties. And, uh, a lot of their music sounded like what was about to be cool, you know? And Mm -hmm. I don't think it wasn't even necessarily that they were, <clears throat> that influential, which they obviously were, but it's just like something that naturally happens with certain people or certain groups. Um, I am not extremely familiar with EVOL. I like it a lot. There's some really good tracks on it. Do you guys have any like? <coughs> what does it stand for? I don't I think know. it's just it's love, love backwards. Oh, yeah. uh, got it. Evil. Um, but it's probably a play. I've always thought it was a play on words with evil, evil yeah. and like evolution or like, you mm-hmm. know, expansion of band. Because like the the difference like compositionally from like between Bad Moon Rising to Evil is like pretty stark. Mm-hmm. There's like 
um, we can talk about which song we want to listen to, but like even just like Shadow of a Doubt and Star Power are both like in my mind like pretty. They represent like a kind of like the range of the band, mm-hmm. um, where Shadow of a Doubt is like has that kind of like desperate, yes, like terribly lonely quality that like eat like a bunch of their like popular songs like Bull in the Heather also has. Star Power is this like rock and roll jam where they're like using all these like cliches of rock and roll iconography and everything. And it went they went from being like a really like noisy like art rock band to to like just with one album kind of like dipping their toes into something like indie rock or something. Yeah, and it's it's um a lot of artsy music abandons emotion i think mm-hmm. in favor of just like being weird and yeah like uh shadow of a doubt is a really emotional song and like i've talked with you guys about how like i don't really like overtly like sexual songs it just kind of like turns me off for some reason but when she's like kiss me like you just like feel it and like you said that desperation and not like oh you're so desperate but like this like spiritual like mm-hmm. desperation yeah there's these there is they do really well at these kind of desperate love songs, like going back to Bad Moon Rising, the song I Love Her All the Time. Mm-hmm. And it's in the year that punk broke of them playing it. And then there's all these shots of, of Kim Gordon. And it's like, oh, they're trying to say this is a love song. And like it is, but there's this like really kind of desperate um, yeah. and like sad thing about it. And something I got from watching interviews and stuff was, you know, they were they're like true freaks, you know. They're they're outsiders and and weirdos. And obviously, the longer they went in their career, the more accepted they were by I don't know millions of people, but mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of people. Um, but in starting, you know, they were they were freaks. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that was eighty six. And then speaking of like emotionally resonant songs the next album um sister i mean we definitely want to listen to uh schizophrenia because it's just one of the most beautiful songs and Mm -hmm. uh this goes back to the the theme of loose themes apparently this album was um based around the life of philip k dick He was born with a twin sister who died right after she was born, and Mm -hmm. he felt like he was uh, haunted by his sister's ghost. Like Elvis. Really? He had a twin, too? Yeah, he said that he killed his twin in the womb, and he always felt guilty. Whoa. Wow, that's crazy. And the song Schizophrenia is about um, Kim Gordon's brother, right? She talks about in the book about how, like, right when she moved to either Southern California or New York, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Um, and had like lasting impact on her life and his. But I didn't, I didn't know that before doing 
research for this episode and just that image of the dead twin haunting you for your whole life is such a powerful image to me mm-hmm. and made the album make more sense somehow. You know, and that's that's just track one, baby. I think we should listen to this song and then like maybe take a few minutes to talk just specifically about the musical qualities of, of this the band. Song? Well, of the band in general, but this song, because this song kind of like kind of sums up the band in a lot of ways in my mind. It has a lot of like the things that they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the the rhythms, like the the whole dissonant section, the building, like the frenetic. Mm-hmm. There's a desperate feeling, yep. like the emotional quality. Like, but just because like um, we haven't really talked explicitly about like the music yet. Yeah, you know? that was actually something I wanted to bring up with um, the transition from Bad Moon Rising to Evil. Um, was they changed drummers, but mm-hmm. the drumming remained this like caveman style, like very tribal driving, but not conventional. Um, and it was, I wonder if, if someone else in the band like Thurston or someone kind of said like, Hey, here's how we want the drums to be. Or if that was a coincidence or. I think they hired Steve Shelley on the spot without an audition after seeing him play. And mm-hmm. I, I think that, I think that, him and Kim and and Lee probably just had like an idea of what they wanted the drums to sound like. Mm-hmm. And then Bert what was his last name, the previous drummer. I can't remember. The previous drummer played a certain way, but I think Steve Shelley just like came along and he played. He did it even better. Mm-hmm. And so they were like, "You're the drummer." And then he evolved his style later on into kind of they went sometimes more conventional, sometimes more like heavy hard rock mm-hmm. or whatever. But uh, yeah, in the beginning here, it was like this real open tom heavy tribal sound mm-hmm. he evolved his he evolved wow. um all right listen to schizophrenia let's do it
So that song reminds me so much of the first Modest Mouse record. Mm. Or is it the first one? Is Lonesome Crowded West the first? No, it's like the, the second fruit that or ate third. Itself is for? Well, either way, it's really the only Modest Mouse record I ever spent any time with. Yeah. And what I like about that record is this song. Mm-hmm. They just ripped this song off. <laughs> you know? It's like the idea that like um, <clears throat> you can, if you look at any band, you can tell what song by another band is this new band. You know what I mean? Yep. Mm. I'm not. I'm not saying that right. No, they. Sonic Youth is a huge one for that, where there's like entire bands' careers encapsulated in one Sonic Youth song, and that goes for bands who existed before them and after them. You know, it's pretty, mm-hmm. uh, pretty interesting and speaks to their like catalog in general. Um, should we talk about that song? Yeah, I would love to. Please, I think that song, like, it just does so much kind of overwhelming how good it is and how like specific it sounds because it it just like even just emotionally it has such a specific quality and it's like both uplifting and like kind of haunting and haunted sounding Mm -hmm. and it has these like really bright melodies in the guitars that were kind of like hallmarks for them that I feel like they really crystallized on uh, Daydream Nation Mm mm-hmm where, like, the guitar will play this, like, you know, potentially, like, anthemic melody if it was, like, played by a different band. And then rather than, like, leaning too heavily into that or, like, compromising and making something that is commercial, it's just, like, laid bare in front of you and, like, not really dressed up in any particular way. And then it's surrounded by just, like, this, like, sense of chaos. Mm -hmm. And, like, I feel like it really, like, this song really distills what I love about the band and and what what for me is like the most impressive thing about them that they never lost over like 30 years is that exact dynamic mm-hmm. of like between like like pop like bubblegum sensibility in the melodies but then also like dissonance and like um really repetitive drumming and like plaintive like yearning vocals and uh yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, with this band, there's a lot. There's a lot of songs that kind of sum them up. Mm-hmm. But this one, especially, especially after watching them play it in the 1991, the year punk broke documentary, I'm pretty sure it's the first song yeah. that they show on the documentary. It just sounds so incredible. Mm-hmm. Like if I was at that show, I'd be like, "This is the best band in the world." You know? And like showing off both both vocalists in the yeah, band. Yeah, the it, fact, totally. Because that's rare. You were saying that, or, or, are there a, like... There are some, but there's not a lot right. of songs where they both sing. But just <clears throat> talking about a song that sums up their, mm-hmm. their whole discography, you know, this is a good candidate for that reason. Yeah, totally. Too. I didn't even think about that. I guess maybe this is a good, like, little jumping off point just to, like, ask you guys, like, what musically you like. In Sonic Keith's music, or like what initially drew you to them, or like what you notice now, because I find that like I've gotten into records. I probably listened to Daydream Nation first, and then Evil, and then I feel like Rather Ripped was the one. A, a later record that we might mm-hmm. talk about was the one that like pulled me in because it's a bit more palatable. But now, going back to a lot of these records, I'm hearing them with like new ears, mm-hmm. which is like one of the coolest thing about us doing this podcast is it like forces me to re-listen to things that I maybe wrote off Mm -hmm. 
but now I'm just like finding like all these different new ideas that they put into their music to really love. Mm-hmm. So yeah, do you guys want to talk about? I uh, played in this band in Raleigh, North Carolina called the Radio Silence, and I was like. 18 at the time and everyone else in the band was in their mid-20s so they were always like hipping me to cool stuff and uh for my birthday one year they just gave me like a stack of cds and dirty was one of them hmm. i didn't really get it at the time um it's kind of similar to when we talked about nirvana it was just like i didn't really like alternative rock and so that's all i really thought that it was but there were some elements of it um and maybe we'll talk about that album more but like the kind of like feminist elements that I was attracted to and and then also the noisier parts which weirdly enough that's their best selling album uh but I think it's just because of the time that Nirvana blew up then and so then it was like every band in Nirvana's orbit also blew up a little right, bit yeah but yeah it wasn't till many years later when I joined a different band Werewolves that the singer of that band was obsessed with Sonic Youth. And I was just like, oh, maybe I need to like give this another shot. And so listening to these earlier albums from the 80s, it clicked a lot more for me. And I don't, it's it's hard to even describe what the thing is that I like about it. It's like the sound, mm-hmm. like the guitars and the drums and the way that everything worked together just create this they were one of the most consistent rock bands ever. Yeah. You know, everything you instantly know, it's Sonic Youth when you hear it. And I just, I like that. And I like the the darkness and the, uh, we talked about it, you brought it up in the, uh, Colin, you brought it up in the um, Slow Dive episode of bands having, or artists having a sense of humor, um, which is something I've been thinking about a lot since then. And this band does a really good job of tempering the serious heaviness with like a little sense of humor and not mm-hmm. taking itself too seriously, you know? Yeah. You can kind of get out of it whatever you want. Cole, how did you get introduced to this band? Um I don't know. And I don't I don't have like much of an answer to like the thing that I, I listened to them for either. Um but I got into this band when I was really young, which I feel really grateful for, like when I was still in high school. And I feel like it's what allowed me to skirt the kind of like, um, you know, emo f- explosion that was happening then in, in like 2002 or whatever. Um, and like, I'm still grateful for that, you know, that I never, never got into, you know, Bright Eyes or like some of the worst offenders. Because I, you know, I found this. I think like a lot of people then found music on Napster or something, and had a CD burner and burned a copy of Goo, and that was like the one for me. Which going back now, it's definitely not my favorite. You know, it's I think Sister Evol are the are the ones that like are are it for me. And and Goo has these cheesy moments, but yeah, that that was that was the one for me. And um, I think that question that you guys both. Did a good job answering. I don't have an answer for it. <laughs> Still better than mine. Yeah, Bailey, you you're like, I mean, you known about Sonic Youth for a while, but you're recently like diving into them. Yeah, I've been familiar with Sonic Youth since I was a Nirvana fan, 
And everyone's like, oh, you like Nirvana. You should listen to Sonic Youth. It's like a more pure, less commercial version of that. And it just didn't do anything to me because what Nirvana was doing for me, like it didn't need to get any weirder for that because I was listening to Nirvana because that made me different. You know, I was hanging out with kids that only listen to rap. Mm-hmm. And then one day I showed up with a Nirvana cassette and I was like, check it out, guys. Like, you know, it was my way of like being an outlier or something or sticking out in the crowd. Like, I listen to rock now. I listen to Nirvana. And it's like, to to them, that was already fucked up enough. You know, I didn't have to push that boundary anymore. <laughs> and, and for myself, it was, you know, I, I don't know, I guess I'm kind of basic, but. You know, when when I tried listening to Sonic Youth back then, hey, it's hard to find. You know, like Cole saying, you find it on Napster. Where was I going to get a Sonic? You know, I had ten dollars a week for mowing the lawn, and that mm-hmm. was going to a Nirvana bootleg for sure. Yeah. So I wasn't spending money on. You know, maybe I'll like this band, and um, yeah. And, it, and by the time that it did, I, I did have access to it. I just had already listened, and the catalog is so big and so diverse that I probably listened to a song and was like, nope, don't like this. Um, And what I really wish is that somebody had introduced me to it when I got to college. Like, if somebody had played me, like, Bull in the Heather when I was 19 or 20 and had first started writing music and, you know, stuff like that, it definitely would have changed my life. Yeah, totally. But I didn't, you know, I would, every once in a while, be like, ah, maybe now I should get into Sonic Youth. And I'd listen to it and was like, nope, guess not. And I'm still kind of there. Um, there's a lot about it that rubs me the wrong way. But um, in the last week, just diving into it, my favorite thing about it, I guess, isn't even musically. It's the lyrics. Because mm-hmm. um, I think Kim is really good at something that I'm bad at, which is, you know, uh, she calls it gathering. You know, you gather lyrics from anything you've written down, you know, just write down everything. And when it comes time for a song, just take bits and pieces from, you know, what feels good. And she just has such good intuition for, A, picking words to use, but also how she delivers them because she doesn't have, like, you know, the greatest singing range or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, a lot of melodies were kind of off the table for her. So it, it was relying way more on just, like, subtle intuitive emotion in, like, how you say something or... Um, the word that you didn't say and stuff like that that um, I think think she's a genius for and now I can sit down and listen to Sonic Youth and sort of skip through to the Kim songs and just be like okay Mm. I like this yeah I did want to talk before we moved on to Daydream Nation I did want to talk a little bit about the lyrics um, on this record because with the story that that you guys are talking about about the Philip K. Dick um, Mm -hmm. twin thing there's there's a line that really stuck out to me this time right after we talked about it which is um she said jesus had a twin who knew nothing about sin fucking brutal (laughs) you know and there are a lot of these there's like this kind of like we talked about their reference to to hardcore and i want to talk a little bit about the lyrics to white cross Mm -hmm. um because it's kind of this like postmodern take on on hardcore where like the ethos of hardcore was defined by a poor and working class opposition to oppressive social social institutions. You know, that was kind of like the the guiding principle of the lyrics of that of that music. And then the song takes the oppressive social institution of the Catholic Church and internalizes it. 
So he's like taking aim at the church by way of taking aim at his own Catholic guilt and the internalized oppression of the institution of the church. It it feels like this really true and kind of brutal um, way of, you know, instead of saying like, fuck the church, it's like, fuck the church inside myself, you mm-hmm. know, the, the the cop in my head or whatever. Yeah. That line about Jesus's brother, I don't know if this is uh, intentional or not, but that's like a kind of Freemason belief was that Jesus had a brother that was actually Lucifer that kind of makes sense that, you know, that they were the kind of yin and yang of mm-hmm. sin and sinless. Huh. Um. Can I say one last thing yeah. about, um, I thought of this with Bailey talking about how he wishes he would have gotten into it at like a specific time. And I think a lot of the bands that, uh, we'll end up talking about on this podcast, a lot of bands in general are kind of so tied to, uh, it's like important that you get into them when you're younger because that's yeah. when you're like most open to whatever mood or like message they're creating. And the irony of them being called Sonic Youth, I think is that they were like one of the most in they're one of the most enduring and they were together for the like longest of like any band from that time. Mm-hmm. Um and it's not really necessary with their music that you like get into it when you're like twelve and angry. Or like nineteen and like getting into playing music, they kind I don't of just think it's accessible to twelve year olds. You know, I think I, I forgot to say that, but I think part of it is that it's not. You know, a lot of music, including things like Nirvana, are marketed and commercialized to twelve year olds, right? And Sonic Youth is just not at all. Maybe that's why it's able to be a bit more uh, not enduring, because obviously Nirvana is enduring. But maybe that's why it's it's easy to get into as an adult. Because it's like actually not for kids. Yeah, it's sophisticated. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whether or not it was trying to be, but and it probably was trying to be. There were artists, and it is more art than it is, or than something like Nirvana. It's sophisticated. It's also very mysterious. Where like schizophrenia, for example, is just the four of them. There's like no additional stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like just the two guitar. I don't know how they make it sound so full. And maybe there's a couple extra layers, but to my ear, it just sounds like the band playing. Mm-hmm. And there's something about, like, I think about this with with our band, where, like, early dive stuff, I feel like people really responded to because there's such a simplicity to some of the guitar parts. Um, or melodies where you can, like, pick up a guitar, or the bass lines especially, you can pick up a bass and just play it. With Sonic Youth, like, you can hear the melody that the guitar is playing, and it's very, like... Not amateurish, but it's very like dumbed down. But the way they're playing it is like completely abstract and mm-hmm. weird because of the tunings and like it's something. It's like you can hear it and like understand it, but if you pick up an instrument, you can't emulate what they're doing. Right. And that's how I feel about the whole band. Yeah, and I think they really represent this like collision of high art and low art. Yeah, you know, um, like the kind of like like. I don't know, kind of like what you just said, these like kind of like primitive playing, mm-hmm. but coming out of this like post-minimalist, like no wave thing. It's like, it is, does feel like a collision between those, those two worlds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's important to say too, I don't think we've mentioned it yet, that Kim Gordon was an artist. She wasn't a musician at all. She had a guitar, but she was from an art background. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's like I can't remember who mentioned it earlier, but uh, them being a band during a time when art wasn't or music wasn't like limited to being an artist, being a, like an artist as a musician wasn't limited to being a musician or mm-hmm. whatever. And same thing with like like Velvet Underground and Annie Warhol and the Factory and the whole like presentation of Velvet Underground as like this like multimedia like band. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that like continued for a long time in the New York scene, mm-hmm. you know, and Sonic Youth was definitely part of that, I think, which is why they like collaborated with so many um, artists of different mediums. And like a lot of their like most notable album art is like just, just like museum quality artwork <laughs> that they paid for, you know? Yeah. Um, When you were saying like just the idea of like revisiting the stuff, uh, a big one for me was Daydream Nation because it's like if you, you know, the first track, uh, Teenage Riot. Yeah. I feel like everyone, whether they know it or not, has heard that song a million times. Yeah. And that's track one of the album. But then once you get past that, it's like an incredible album with mm-hmm. some really good, really resonant songs. Um, <clears throat> and it, goes along with the theme of themes that they uh it was based on um not based on but influenced by uh this uh trilogy called the sprawl it was a science fiction guy william gibson who i guess kind of invented like um cyberpunk genre or whatever which you know philip k dick and then this guy it's like clearly there was a strong science fiction thing happening But knowing that, like, because the songs are very sprawling and they feel like that, you know, like the sprawl of just like, because that trilogy is about a super city that stretches from Boston to Atlanta, I think is the idea, which is like, you know, unimaginably huge or whatever. There's a word for it, right? Sprawl, isn't it? No, there's a word for specifically that's because they're saying it already kind of exists and we're just sort of filling in the holes. Oh, yeah. But it's like the whole eastern seaboard is going to be one big city. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a cool word for there it. There is a word for Oceania it. or something like that. I mean, it's kind of in keeping with their uh, one of the themes that they plan, which is like places. Mm. Like a lot of their song titles. I mean, we could do like a whole podcast about their song titles because <laughs> yeah. they're so crazy. But like, uh, just like places or like Pacific Coast Highway, like yeah. Malibu, something like these, like. Places around America like come up a lot. And I think it touches on that idea of yeah. sprawl, which is cool. It's so cool that like the ideas that they present are just like they're so open ended that you can like start to find um, the connections in a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. And you can go, I've been a fan of this band for so long. I've never even known about this shit that you're bringing up. And but it makes total sense. Right. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Before we started research, I didn't. I didn't read into it much at all. Mm -hmm. Another thing I like with places is a lot of the song titles are just the name of their rehearsal space or their their recording (laughs) studio, Echo Canyon, Murray Street, which they had to evacuate after after 9-11. It does seem like, you know, they themselves are the sprawl. Mm -hmm. When you brought up Pacific Coast Highway, something I love so much about that song is um, the middle of the song when that guitar line comes in.
the sound of that guitar, like the guitar part is pretty basic and I feel like has been explored in other bands and other songs, but the actual sound of it has this breezy quality that I can't quite put my finger on that it sounds like the Pacific Coast Highway to me. Mm. Like it's just like the perfect name for that song. I was watching an interview, I can't remember which one, but the person is like, you're a New York band, right? And they're like, no. All of them, I mean, they might they might be just giving the dude shit. Yeah. But they're like, no, we don't live there. I think this was later on. But I... I it, Are you like, talking about the Nardware interview? I or? am. I don't want to bring it up because <laughs> yeah. it's so brutal and cringe to me. And... I, I hate thinking about it because they did. Okay. I'll just say it briefly. They did an interview with Nardwar when they were on tour with Neil Young in 90 something. Um, before Nardwar was like a thing and they're just like, so he's like an absolute institution of, of rock music now. Yeah. And, and like all like, music, he interviews everybody. But back then he was just like a college kid with a tape recorder. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and you know, and his they, bit is that he's annoying. Right. Yeah. It's been to say he's annoying, but they're just so mean to him, especially Lee Ronaldo, who like breaks one of the uh, seven inches that he gives <laughs> the band. Really? Yeah, breaks it in front of him. He's like bending it. He's like, oh, bending it back Nardwar's and forth. Like, and he's like, no, no don't. And then he breaks it and they like dance around him. And there's some more. It's really bad. It's like, I wish I had never seen it. But yeah, in that interview, he's like, is it safe to say that you're a New York band? And they're like, no. And I really actually, that resonated as as being true. Mm-hmm. I th- I think even though they're so tied to New York um and so they were so much part of a scene there like mm-hmm. their music does like feel like it really just for lack of a better term like sprawls out, mm-hmm. you know. I just found out that they're a New York band like this week. Oh wow. You know, I had no and I read it and I was like, oh that can't be right. And then I looked and I was like, oh, okay, oh this makes sense. No wave, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And I it, there's just nothing New York about them when I look at them. And it's funny to think of Kim Gordon being from L.A. Because I feel right, like most yeah. people who wind up in New York, like, flee the suburbs, mm-hmm. you know, and, like, you know, go to make their dreams happen. But, you know, she went straight from Cal- from being from L.A. to going to CalArts and then and then moving to New York. And, and Steve Shelley was in, what, Austin or something? He was in Michigan, and he almost went to Austin but went to New York instead. Mm. But the the Kim Gordon being from L.A. and stuff, and I read somewhere that she described her family as faux hippie, <laughs> which I understand what that means, even though I've never heard that before, really, as in, like, you know, in the 60s or 70s, like, to describe a family as faux hippie. I, I think I know what that means. And... uh Wanting to abandon that for, you know, the image of New York City she probably had in her mind. But, you know, the yeah. late 70s punk scene of New York City um, is another rejection of the previous generation's counterculture. Mm-hmm. But I still can't picture that. Like, <clears throat> like I mean, I can picture because I know people who resemble members of Sonic Youth in New York City. So I know what they would have looked like walking around. But it... it you know, they're coming out at the same exact time that hip-hop was born in New York City. And it's just, the my idea of Sonic Youth is so far removed from that universe. It's just really hard to picture them like sharing subways. But they mm. were they were homies with hip-hop people, and they yeah. were, like, really influenced by that scene yeah. that was happening. And not just sampling. Thurston's got some bars. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, Chuck D was on... Um, cool thing mm-hmm. song and they recorded 
um, like the first two records at, at that studio in, um, in, uh, in downtown New York cause public enemy recorded there. Mm-hmm. You know, talking about like references and stuff. Uh, also they're on the vinyl version of daydream nation, you know, it's a double disc. Mm-hmm. So there's four album faces and each label is, um, a different symbol like Zoso, um, that they were like either referencing or parodying, which I thought was pretty funny, especially because I mean, it's, it ties into, um, just what I was saying earlier with them tempering kind of like serious music with like a little sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else about Daydream Nation? I w- well, I wanted to, when you were talking about Zoso parodies, Danny has this amazing Dead Milkman shirt with this really funny Zoso parody on the back. And I wanted to read what it says. And I, I don't know what it says, so I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think it even being... A double record is like this kind of referential thing, but like kind of like we were talking about the like ironic appropriation, you know, like double albums throughout the 70s have been this like bloated self-indulgent kind of trope and making a double album was like kind of reappropriated by bands like the Minutemen we talked about um, earlier and Husker Du who made Zen Arcade that's this like classic punk double album. And it was, like, referencing the, like, bloatedness, but, like, kind of taking it back, you know, and, like, the the trilogy at the end of, um, at the end of Daydream Nation, it was such a thing of these bloated records to, like, have a trilogy, Mm -hmm. you know, like, ELO or whatever would, like, like, and then the final sweep, and then, you know, the, the, the music is complete, and it's, and they kind of took the piss out of it, um, which is just, like, I feel like plays into their like deep knowledge and reference, but also um, reverence, but also, uh, you know, this like ironic appropriation of, of rock and roll tropes. Yeah. I guess it's worth saying that, um, you know, this is like rated as one of the best uh, rock albums ever. And yeah, it's like their masterpiece, which is funny that it's a double album because I feel like that is such a thing of like, oh, well, the double album, that's yeah. the masterpiece. Well, and on the theme of themes, uh, they use that riff from uh, Teenage Riot throughout the whole album. I love mm-hmm. when bands do that, when they go back to like this guitar part. It's like, because apparently I think Thurston was just in a manic phase of writing and it shows that every song is just like kind of part of the same thread mm-hmm. of just like sitting down with a guitar and just like writing all these songs that kind of sound alike, but each have their own flavor. And then just being like, fuck it, I'm putting the, the riff back in there. It fits perfectly. You know, I think that's called a motif mm, in music. Yes. And we do that by accident. It's kind of funny. <laughs> like if you write a bunch of songs in the same period of time, you're gonna just like come up with the same ideas as yourself, mm-hmm. you know? So like, like on our last record, Taker and Between Tides both use that same riff like completely by accident or the first record. Um, Sometime in How Long Have You Known have the same guitar part. Same guitar part. But it's kind of buried in How Long Have You Known. Yeah. But I only was, know it because I play the part and mm-hmm. there's like one note that's different and I always fuck it up. But it's just like totally, for at least me, it's completely by accident just because, mm-hmm. you know, you 
you make music in a short period of time and you're just like, this seems cool. But it, yeah, I, I think Daydream Nation is cool as like, it's a cool moment for them because it put them on the map. And I think prior to then, um, I know that they were like getting really popular in the UK and Europe, but like, uh, American media was kind of ignoring them Mm -hmm. and they started to play like enemy started to cover them, um, before daydream nation. And then they started to play more shows in New York when they came back. But I think Daydream Nation was the moment where they they put out a record and like no one could ignore them anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just interesting because it's not even like it's not even halfway through their discography. And all of this was happening in the '80s, you know. Like I, you just think of them as like a '90s, like either grunge or alternative or indie or whatever. But like none of those things even existed when they were making all this. Totally. Shit. And it's it's funny how Daydream Nation has a like a lot of like the the guitar riffs that you're talking about and the style of the guitar playing and the melody is like you still hear it in indie music. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you hear it all through the '90s too. It's just weird how like I mean that album too was very ahead of its time somehow. Mm-hmm. And this. This record, I think, really is the moment, like I talked about earlier, where they like explicitly tried to kind of package their experimental ideas into this like pop, more pop sensibility. Like this, if you point to any of them, like there's elements of it before, but like this is the one. Mm-hmm. That's true, but also, you know, I don't think any of the songs are less than like six minutes long. <laughs> like they're, you know, they didn't shy away from their experimental ideas. I'm, I'm not sure. If it was this one, <clears throat> or maybe it was like Washing Machine. Oh, I think it actually was Washing Machine because uh, it has a 20-minute long song at the end of it. But Henry Rollins uh, said to them that he like admired their the way that they play really long live and that they should try to do that on record. And in some interview, Thurston said, like, if I was like as much of the leader of the band as everyone thought I was, like every song would be 20 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> it was Daydream Nation. Oh, it was? That like Henry Rollins convinced them to incorporate their like longer jam elements. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's just, it's so cool how it's, you know, the first song, Teenage Riot, is this like pop song, but it has this like two minute long, just like kind of ambient intro. Mm-hmm. And then like the song starts at like, you know, like a good portion into the actual track length. Mm -hmm. And it is kind of this like, fuck you to, um, you know, to, to radio or anything that would like attempt to, um, package it and, and commodify it, even though that is kind of what they're trying to do, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. One thing I love when bands do, uh, you mentioned ELO a minute ago as like a, an example of like pop excess or whatever, like, is when a band has a really good chorus or something like that, and they're not afraid to repeat it like a thousand times, and it's just <laughs> like, yeah, we know this part's good. That's how I feel about the riff and they just put it all over the record, and it just gets stuck in your head because it's a great riff. And so, why not repeat it a bunch? <laughs> True. Um, but speaking of Henry Rollins, uh, you know their next record, Goo, had the. Raymond Pettibon cover, that's the guy's name, right? Mm-hmm. And he also did um, some Black Flag record covers. Well, he's Greg Ginn's brother. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Yeah, so like, yeah, Raymond Ginn is his name. So like, 
you know, he he's the one that came up with the name Black Flag. He came up with the with the bar's logo, which mm. is like supposed to be this, you know, flag waving. And like he kind of is this genius behind Black Flag and what made them so massive because just just the name Black Flag yeah. and, and and the logo the is like aesthetic. such a huge part of it. And then their album art, you know, he did all this kind of like diverse um like you know like punk flyer art and and album art and it's it's um you know really singular and like i feel like kind of defines black flag for a lot of people mhm which is funny that you know as as you were saying Colin uh um daydream nation became one of their bigger records at the time and then goo collaborating with like you know punk legend guy but it was also their major label debut of uh geffen records Mm -hmm. but it was like a subsidiary of geffen which i think the band was like really bummed about because they wanted like a big label and stuff and they're like yeah yeah like here just you know sign on the dotted line and they're like oh yeah by the way like we're putting you on this like subsidiary I think that soured them on that relationship, even though they put out eight records on Geffen. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it was a lot. I think this becomes a theme in their music of like this. They were pretty big and popular and playing huge festivals and all this stuff, but they never left behind their like DIY kind of, I mean, DIY might not be the right word, but like the, they never were, it didn't make them experiment less or like do anything uh, less aggressive. Like they were still just like doing whatever they did. Well, like what, what was the single off goo? Like there, there are some cool thing maybe or cool thing was. Yeah. Cool thing would be a cool one to talk about if anybody had a, um, to listen to it. It's like a polarizing song, isn't it? Yeah. I like, I like it. Yeah. Sonic Youth with Cool Thing. Cool Thing. Wow. Um, I, that's a cool song. <laughs> I actually, I really like it. 
I think it bef- previously in my life I listened to that song and I was like, I don't like this. Something about the vocals annoyed me, but but I actually kind of like how snotty. Was and, it that they were confronting your your patriarchal masculinity? I don't think so. I think it's just like when I was younger, sometimes the delivery of of some of the Sonic Youth vocals seemed like overly serious to me, but now I've like reframed it and it's actually kind of like tongue in cheek and funny. It is, yeah. Um, maybe Bailey, do you want to flex uh, some hip hop knowledge and and just kind of because Chuck D's on, he's from Public Enemy, is nineteen ninety. Like, right? What's in your mind? Well, do they have any big songs that addressed uh, the police? Or- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, right. Yeah, at this point in time, Chuck D was basically just a symbol of political rap, and uh, I think that. You're right that there is, like, on face value, this song, I think, is adolescent and problematic. But I think that if you do take into account some tongue-in-cheek, maybe I'll give it a pass. But what she's doing is taking that figure of rap um, and then also addressing LL Cool J. And LL Cool J as this, like, symbol of the other side of rap. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, like she never says yo fuck you LL but like a lot of the references in the songs um, uh, are uh, what's it like Walking Like a Panther is a LL Cool J uh, reference and um, a bit about the radio and stuff that's an LL Cool J song and so she's like juxtaposing these two black male figures and how they relate to her as a woman a white woman oppressed by the same system and saying like like y'all are successfully overcoming oppression. Am I going to be included in that or no? Mm. And yikes. I, it, yikes is the word. Yeah. It, yeah. it reminded me a lot of the same feeling I get when I watch that video of um, Jane's addiction and uh, uh, what's Ice T's metal band? Body Count. Body Count. Yeah. Where they cover the Sly and Family Stone song, Don't Call Me N Word Whitey. Yeah. And it's, Oh, I thought that was the Chili Peppers. That's Jane's Addiction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because it's Perry Farrell. Um, <laughs> just throwing N-bombs just left screaming, and right. Yeah. Screaming. And you can tell he's not having any fun doing it, but they still did it, and they still thought that it was a good thing. Mm-hmm. That just totally missed the mark. Yeah. And um, I I get that same weird taste in my mouth uh, from this song. When they- and just the name, cool thing, like cool with a K. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm reading about it now, and apparently for the music video, Kim Gordon initially wanted to wear a beret and carry an Uzi as a self-described poser leftist girl lusting after Black Panther's concept. Okay. Wow. I didn't but see Geffen the video. But vetoed it. So the video, uh, the video is sort of like a, like poking fun at the like Patty Hearst. I don't know what the video ended up being because that got nixed. But it seems like she was self-aware. Yeah, it does. Wasn't... Actually, that makes me have a more sympathetic reading. Right, yeah, me too. Okay. And that, basically what I was saying, like, on face value, it's adolescent and problematic. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure that there's more to it. I give Kim some more credit. Yeah. Um, it also reminds me of the Pixie song. Uh, what the fuck? The one about the big dick. Oh, uh, Gigantic? Yeah, yeah, Gigantic. Yeah, that song is. Same vibe. Yikes. <laughs> it's funny hearing this though, and I I was just wondering if you had any like reference or 
you can make sense of it just for the significance of him being on the track. It's like, cause that happens in, that has happened many times in like rock and roll history of like a rapper, like guesting on a song and having it be this weird crossover moment mm-hmm. or like Jay-Z doing a, an album with Linkin Park, you know, yeah, or more successfully, um, Aerosmith, Run DMC, or even right. like straight up, I discovered Wu Tang through the song Fred Durst did with Method Man. Really? Yeah, like it is an effective way <laughs> wow. to reach out to normie ass you know, white kids <laughs> like me. Run DMC thing was uh, before this, right? Wasn't that in like eighty nine yeah, yeah, or something? That was, yeah. Uh, Jay Mascus is on this album too. Yeah, A little guest yeah, spot. I really, really loved watching. Um, Jay Maskus and and Kim Gordon interact in Year That Punk Broke. Mm, he's so young. He's really young. You know, he doesn't like you picture Jay Maskus, you picture the white hair. Yeah. You know, but he's got this like neon trucker hat in the in the long, long black hair and clean shaven. Yeah, it's it's just like um I don't know what you expect from listening to Dinosaur Jr., but it was exactly what I hoped he would be. <laughs> you know. One thing I really liked about that little documentary was they really captured the like tour psychosis that everyone is under. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Just like being in the green room, being like grapes, grapes. Yeah. Like, just like this weird psychosis that you undergo from yeah. traveling. Or even just the beginning with like Thurston with a microphone and yeah. like Kim Gordon and Kurt Cobain are just like dancing around on train tracks and yeah. he's just going, yeah, <laughs> dance, dance, but really talking about just crazy word association shit that just keeps going. And I'm like, I'm like, was this funny to people there at the time? But then it, it almost doesn't matter because you're just so bored on tour that like mm-hmm. any diversion totally. is nice. So you know? much of it yeah. rang true. And Danny got a kick out of this one part of the thing where they're talking about how Thurston's just walking around Europe looking for record stores that don't exist. <laughs> and I feel like that's such a classic tour thing. It was just like, yeah, like... I heard there's a record store a couple blocks away. Like, I'm just going to go find it. And, like, you don't. But then you just, like, get, you know, your environment on tour is the venue, the backstage, and then, like, the two-block radius around the venue. And then you're like, yeah, I've been to Vienna. Right. You know? But But you really haven't. You haven't. Um, Speaking of, like, tongue-in-cheek stuff, is the year that punk broke, are they being funny or are they being serious when they say that phrase? I think there was an article that came out called that or something. I think it was because, yeah, like, Kim yells it in the documentary at a show, like, haven't you heard? This is the year that punk broke. Yeah. Yeah. Because they had been involved in the punk scene for a decade already. Um, But then, like, Nirvana comes out and punk breaks you so know? they're making fun of it a little I, bit yeah I think okay so. yeah so that was after, that was the album cycle of goo um and they they toured europe and played a bunch of huge festivals with nirvana and everyone had a great time the end <laughs> it's it is such a that documentary is so wild to watch um especially watching it like I think I watched it after we recorded the Nirvana episode, mm-hmm. but and just like digging into how like much like tragedy was involved with that band. But then that documentary is just such a little glimpse into like 
the good days. Yeah. Like totally. the actually legitimately good days when everyone was like stoked. And Kurt Cobain doesn't come across as like the world's biggest rock star. He comes across as like this tiny little man. Yeah. You know? yeah when they do the bit where they're like, Thurston, I want you to meet your biggest fan. And like mm-hmm. Kurt comes in all like, <laughs> hi. And then like throat pour champagne on everybody. Yeah. It's very cute and, and wholesome. Yeah. It, it is really like interesting. I feel like watching old footage of, um, you know, people like Kurt Cobain or Elliot Smith is a good one. There's that strange parallel um, video that, that he made. And like, he's just joking around and laughing the whole time. But like, I feel like when you picture these people, you picture these like sullen, depressed, mm-hmm. like, you know, um, which is like, I think it has to do with, which I think we should talk about in a future episode because we're probably going to have to do two parts about Sonic Youth, but about like the packaging of masculinity in these white rock bands as this like frail um, thing, but full of rage at the same time, Mm -hmm. you know, like this like perpetual victim and oppressor at the same time. And like, I think it's kind of a misreading of feminism, but it's, it's like across the board in, um, in, uh, you know, rock music. Yeah. And I feel like Sonic Youth and Nirvana were great examples of this, um, thing that was perceived or projected as like macho masculine culture. And it's like, they were feminists, you know? Mm -hmm. dive podcast i kind of had a feeling this was going to happen but we're like halfway through the discography and <laughs> we've it's been several hours and we gotta go you also see and the playlist has been made for us for this it's over three hours long yeah yeah and it's great and it actually that playlist is part of the thing that made me want to like talk about the whole discography because mm-hmm. it was just like oh it just keeps getting like not better necessarily but it keeps getting good yeah, yeah. i think to focus on the early records does do them a disservice and i feel like uh-huh. i've done that my whole life of just like you know really into the first couple of sonic youth records and then like i'll visit something from their later career i'm just like why the fuck don't i listen to this yeah and this is just so fun and like this like lengthy recording that we just did was like us restraining ourselves from talking (laughs) about shit. There's so much to talk about. I know. So, you know, listener, you get a break. Um, (laughs) Do your homework. Light some incense. Worship at the altar of Sonic Youth and we'll be back for part two at some point. (laughs) 